Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are, around the world and in the UK, because we're global these days. And as ever, we've got tons to get through during our time together. If it's okay with all of you, I will be reflecting on a theme that I think explains quite a lot, the relationship between Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak, but in a wider context, looking at Theresa May's relationship with Philip Hammond and posing this question. We've had two prime ministers, Boris Johnson and Theresa May, who half recognise the need to move on from pure Thatcherism. Incidentally, an ideology that was framed very much in the late 1970s as a response to the political and economic challenges of that specific time. But the Conservative Party has not been able to let go. She has held it in her thrall even since um, her death. But Theresa May and Boris Johnson, two very different characters, have sort of recognised that the times now demand different responses and have kind of attempted to move their party on. But in each case, they appointed a chancellor with entirely different economic approaches to them. Philip Hammond was known as Spreadsheet Phil, looking at the figures very much from a Thatcherite point of view. And now Rishi Sunak, this self-declared fiscal conservative who overtly, openly looks to the 1980s, has a photo of Nigel Lawson next to him in his treasury office and so on. Anyway, that's what I'm going to be exploring a bit because it says so much about uh, the modern Conservative Party. And um, if it's okay with you, I'll be looking at that. Then we'll be hearing from your brilliant questions, a whole range of different questions this week as ever, all urgently topical, all putting into context the great dramas we're living through. Before all of that, one quick announcement And that is for those of you on the Patreon version of Rock and Roll Politics. And thank you if you've subscribed. And please do, if you haven't, the link will be with the blurb uh, for this podcast. And you can go to Rock and Roll Politics Patreon. Anyway, you get bonus podcasts on there. And the next one, we're doing elections at the moment. And the next one will be after much agonizing and brilliant suggestions, the 1992 general election because the elections I'm doing have great significance and cinematic qualities to them. And 1992 definitely meets both those criteria. The election that many thought that Neil Kinnock would win, he lost after nine long, wearying years as leader, still getting it over to this very weak, the week incidentally of his 80th birthday. The fourth Tory win in a row, John Major, Chris Patton, an interesting axis that didn't really last because Patton lost his seat in 1992. And that election and the defeat for Labour sowed the seeds of new Labour. To understand new Labour and 1997, you have to look at 1992. So that gives me a chance to look at 1997 as well. So that'll be with you at the beginning of April, the next bonus podcast. And then after that, I think we'll take a break from elections. We'll come back to them because they shed so much light on 
politics and the way we're governed, the way we live, the state of the parties, the characters and so on. And I'm going to follow some of your email suggestions and look at big cock-ups in politics or apparently big cock-ups in politics because the reasons why they happened are more interesting than the surface explanations of, oh my God, what a disaster. How could he or she have thought of doing that? And I thought, if it's okay with you, I would begin that one some way off with Thatcher and the poll tax, because it's so, so interesting. And in that little series, I'll also look at Theresa May's decision to call an early election in 2017 and compare it with Gordon Brown's decision not to call one when he became prime minister and had a honeymoon in 2007, and one or two others related to early elections. But anyway, that's some way off. Your next one is 1992. And you, you get other fun things, you know, mugs, rock and roll politics mugs and so on. Anyway, let's move on now to my thoughts for this week arising from the Sunak statement. What we've seen since the resignation of David Cameron are the early tentative attempts by the Conservative Party to return to its one-nation tradition. And the attempts have been dependent on the leaders they elected. It's a myth, by the way, and it's one of the caricatures that needs exposing, that the Conservative Party is gloriously flexible and adaptable. And that's why it wins elections compared to the rigid, stubborn, Labour Party. They do win elections and the reasons for that are many, but flexibility is not one of them. They have stuck since 1979 largely to the Thatcherite ideas that she espoused from the late 70s onwards. They've managed still to win with those. That's partly because they are accompanied by such populist language, you know, let the state get off your backs and we believe in freeing people, empowering people, giving people their money that they earn back, not the state wasting it. It's got a load of populist language, a lot of support in the media and so on. So there are reasons why the Conservatives win elections. Another, of course, is the uselessness of the Labour Party, but it's not inflexibility on the Labour side. They have proven to be remarkably flexible, adopting quite a lot of Thatcherite ideas in uh, the mid-1990s. Look at the way Neil Kinnock epically tried to change Labour when he became leader in 83 and so on. They've Labour have tried all kinds of things, you know, extreme pragmatism, Corbynism and so on. They, they are so flexible, I think it sometimes bewilders the electorate. So they're the flexible ones, not the Tories, but the Tories win. However, what's really interesting, and all parties have to do this at some point, is they have to look at the external circumstances and wonder whether their prevailing ideas and ideology still applies. And that, rightly, is what Theresa May tried to do when she became Tory leader after the Brexit referendum. Now, this was not so much her, but her special advisor, Nick Timothy, who was an interesting combination of sort of 
Ed Miliband style intervention and kind of Enoch Powell nationalism. He was a Brexit supporter, amongst other things. But he recognised that it was time economically to move on from Thatcherism. And he used to get really annoyed when columnists uh, used to portray the May leadership as a swing to the right after the modernising Cameron, because he Nick Timothy rightly realised they were moving to the left of Cameron and Osborne, who reinforced Thatcherism in their economic policies. But one of the obstacles to Theresa May pulling that off, or Nick Timothy pulling that off, was immediate, the appointment of Philip Hammond as a Chancellor. Now, Philip Hammond, in my view, is uh, in a different league to Rishi Sunak. He had much more experience. He recognised that uh, Brexit would be a catastrophe. And so he was a more considered and weighty figure than Sunak. But he was spreadsheet film. The figure in the Treasury, and the Treasury loved it, who looked at the figures, worried about spending, didn't believe the state should be too active, and so on. And often sought to block Theresa May when she wanted the government to do more and to spend more. And it used to drive Nick Timothy crazy, and he was not uh, keen on the appointment of Philip Hammond as Chancellor. And of course, during that early election in 2017, which we'll be exploring uh, soon on that Patreon site, he or somebody within May's circle was briefing that Philip Hammond could well be moved as Chancellor after a Tory victory. Of course, that Tory victory was so indecisive, May had no authority to move him and he stayed. But she wanted to intervene more in markets, said so in general terms. She wanted to invest more in certain areas of government, but he quite often blocked it. And here was an early example of a Tory leader seeking to move on from 1980s ideology, being blocked by an increasingly assertive chancellor who was still very much framed by the 1980s. Now we move on to Johnson. Now Johnson does not have a as rooted and coherent set of views as, say, Nick Timothy, who so influenced Theresa May. But there is no doubt that Johnson is partially, anyway, a Keynesian. He's basically a cakeist. He wants to have his cake and eat it. He wants Thatcherite tax cuts. He wants big spending and so on. But in being a kind of shallow cakeist, it doesn't mean he doesn't understand some of the benefits of Keynesianism. He used to do it when he was London mayor. He used to argue at Tory party conferences that if the government invested in the London underground, different parts of the country would benefit economically because different parts of the country produce the parts for new tubes, you know, the tubes in the underground and so on. He used to put Keynesian arguments and he came to that job in number 10 with a couple of instincts. I wouldn't elevate them more than that, but we know what they were because he said it in uh, his opening statement in number 10. Uh, he claimed it was a lie to have a plan to address the social care issue. He didn't have a plan, but it showed that he recognised that huge investment was required in social care to even highlight it and pretend he had a plan. And that involves big 
money. The other interesting thing was his approach to Brexit. A lot of Tory MPs had this fantasy of Britain becoming like Singapore, low tax, low spend, light regulation. It was very interesting when there were all those queues for petrol and so on in the autumn. Johnson put a kind of Tony Benn argument, a Benite argument, saying, look, yeah, plenty of, this means more work for British people. He was basically hailing the labour shortage as an import control that helped British workers. And Tony Benn was a big advocate of import controls as part of his alternative economic strategy. So Johnson quite often, I don't think he fully realises it, puts arguments on the left and quite often wants to spend big money, as he did on social care, although it's now been sucked up chaotically in health provision. And of course, there isn't as much of it as originally planned because the national insurance rise uh, has been mitigated by raising the thresholds before you pay it. So there's less coming in from that source. They haven't explained where that shortfall is going to be made up, if it is going to be made up. But once again, I think Johnson, and he, he quite often refers to the modern Tory party as a one nation Tory party. He's not as you know weighty and coherent as a sort of Macmillan figure. But He knows that pure Thatcherism doesn't work in the context of Brexit and all the other seismic global events. But he appointed a Chancellor Sunak, who clearly looks to the 1980s quite openly. If you want tax cuts, they have to be paid for by spending cuts and so on. And this tension is interesting. We'll come to the tension in a moment, but before we do, there's a kind of immediate question. Why do these prime ministers appoint people who are going to block their visions of how to rule Britain in a period of great turmoil? I think with uh, Theresa May stroke Nick Timothy, Nick Timothy was just overruled on this one. He had quite a lot of influence in uh, Theresa May's first cabinet, but she decided she wanted uh, Philip Hammond, uh, someone who was solid and reliable as she saw it, was not absolutely part of the sort of Cameroonian circle of people who saw politics as a game, as she saw them largely rightly. He was serious and thorough and relatively trustworthy. So she chose him on those grounds without analysing too deeply how that would mean Nick Timothy's broader economic agenda would be undermined. And it perhaps shows that she hadn't clearly thought through the degree to which that economic agenda would challenge current orthodox Tory thinking. So that's why Hammond got it. It was a Theresa May choice, not a Nick Timothy one. I think the, the, the rise of Sunak is quite extraordinary. This was Dominic Cummings' appointment, and Dominic Cummings is not a pure Thatcherite. He is fascinated by how government works and how you deliver public services more effectively and how you make Whitehall work more effectively. And occasionally his instincts are with Johnson's to spend and invest in big projects. And yet he chose Sunak. Basically, Cummings appointed Sunak as Chancellor, arranged for the sacking of Javid, uh, who was uh, Johnson's first choice, and incidentally was pretty close to Sunak in his 1980s ideology as well. I think Cummings, who isn't a great judge of character, 
I think he's a very interesting figure and some of his blogs are worth reading. He's on that substack now, you know, so you probably don't want to pay the 10 quid or whatever. But he's quite interesting on this current Ukraine situation as well, I think. But anyway, Cummings is not a good judge of character in the same way Johnson isn't. And Johnson didn't understand Cummings and never thought about it in too much detail. Cummings, I don't think, understood Sunak. Sunak, in his early phase as Chancellor, was malleable. He was so grateful to be there. He knew the context in which he got there, which was he was the chosen one from within the then mighty Cummings number 10 regime and probably gave Cummings the impression that he and Cummings were at one, when clearly they weren't. And he's clearly, emphatically, not where Johnson is on a range of issues. Now, Sunak has become more assertive as Johnson became more vulnerable. So the spring statement was framed while Johnson's mind was on saving his own skin above everything else. And of course, Ukraine, the two connected as far as Johnson is concerned. And Sunak, in that period of Johnsonian vulnerability, became more Sunak-like. This fiscal conservative doesn't want to press the levers of government. And it's quite a dangerous thing because uh, the whole treasury culture is like that. Sound money. Don't spend on big projects. It's always a waste. And so on. So the treasury will be thrilled with Sunak's fiscal conservatism. But it means that some of Johnson's ideas cannot be followed through. We've seen it already with the constraints on high-speed rail. And as I say, on social care now, uh, it was Sunak who insisted on tax rise to pay for it. And they came up with national insurance and now found that it doesn't work politically at the current time. So they have to reduce the amount they're getting from it. It was Sunak who wanted a minimalist spring statement. They both agree on pre-election tax cuts because that's how Tories win elections. But in the meantime, I think there's going to be enormous strain. So I think Sunak is there. It was a Cummings appointment because Cummings didn't fully understand Sunak. Now, what happens this summer will be dependent on one thing and one thing alone. Who feels more strong in that dynamic? If Johnson is further undermined by the police investigation to all those parties and so on, Sunak will become assertive again. But if Johnson recovers from that and voters fall for the spin that he's a global war leader, then it is possible that Johnson becomes much more interventionist and tells Sunak he must do more. And Sunak's reaction to that will be very interesting. So it's going to be a summer of great drama, unavoidably, because inflation disrupts not only economies but governments because they are not quite sure what's going to happen next or what they should do. And at a future podcast, I'll look at how different governments met or tried to meet the challenge of inflation in the 70s and 80s because I think there are big lessons from the Heath government, the Wilson government and the Callaghan government in the 70s and then the Thatcher government from 79. And those lessons need to be learned urgently. There is no route map available on the basis of what happened then. Although Jacob Rees-Mogg in cabinet recently argued basically to follow the Thatcher one, and you can see Sunat's instincts leaning in that direction. But anyway, that's for another podcast. But I thought it's so interesting 
You see, the where it works, that dance between number 10 and number 11, is when prime ministers and chancellors have formed a relationship in opposition. Now, you know, you can disagree with the substance of the policies, but Cameron and Osborne. You can recognise the incredible tensions, but Blair and Brown. There were tensions too between Howe and Thatcher, but they had formed relationships when they were moving in opposition into power. And they are the ones that sort of work. Theresa May, Philip Hammond, Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak, disastrous. And, you know, it's why another thing I'm thinking of doing on this Patreon thing is special advisors in number 10, because prime ministers choose those and have the freedom to choose them. But their freedom to choose chancellors, especially prime ministers who spent no time as leader of the opposition, much more constrained. Anyway, God, what times we're living through at the moment, eh? And, and what a period of months to come. At which point, let's hear from all of you, or some of you, not all of you, because that would take up months, but some of you with your questions. Okay, I've just switched uh, to the questions. This first one is from Sean Allison, who says, Hi, Steve, I'm not a baker or a runner, but love the show all the same. Oh, that's great. Thank you, Sean. It's not compulsory to bake bread and run at the same time whilst listening to this podcast. Anyway, Sean says, with the inability of the Tories to get rid of the now electoral liability that is Boris Johnson, I'd say he's a 50-50 chance to fight the next election. And Rishi Sunak's handling of the spring statement, things that wouldn't have happened under previous Tory governments, has a combination of Brexit and Johnson's party management permanently damaged the Tories' ability to be the great winners in British politics. Not necessarily, Sean. I think you're right that um, the spring statement was mishandled by Sunak. As I say, mishandled in a way, perhaps the wrong term, because I think Sunak believed it. But it's it's gone down really badly in the media. And Johnson and so on. But the Tories win elections for other factors, actually. And they are, well, I've gone through some of them even today. They have the, they're good at election winning language. They have much of the media on their side. And and, and Labour have to be in stellar form, unified or an appearance of unity, momentum, dynamism, you know, purpose. And they have to seize it all uh, for that to change. But um, let's see what happens to Johnson, first of all, uh, Sean. And thanks for listening. Uh, Dominic Lee, see, I haven't sent a question in for a while, but have one to reflect on and think about. Uh, Whilst Blair may not have wanted to hand the keys over to Brown, he was an obvious heir. Similarly, Cameron had Osborne and may seem to champion Jeremy Hunt. I'm not sure whether she did, although I see what you mean about Jeremy Hunt, you know, because he was a constant cabinet figure under both Cameron and then Theresa May. If the question or thought has even entered his mind, who do you think would be someone Johnson would want to carry on once he has gone? He travels light ideologically, it seems. So it's not as though there's an agenda or direction to carry on. Would like to hear your thoughts. Yeah, really interesting. I've actually saved two of the last podcasts to enjoy on my flight. I'm off on honeymoon, much postponed to Tanzania for a safari. And I'm planning to listen 
in the evenings. What a romantic honeymoon, Dominic, listening to these podcasts. And I hope your wife will be listening on separate headphones so you can talk about it afterwards. There will be nothing more romantic to do on the honeymoon or your flight. So uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to be part of your honeymoon. On the question, Johnson is so self-absorbed. The question of who should succeed him would not really have crossed his mind. He thinks about surviving himself personally, winning the next election in terms of being an historic prime minister. But I don't think you're right because he has uh, no rooted ideology or coherent set of kind of ideas that then lead to a policy program. And he doesn't really have allies as such. He's a loner. It won't have crossed his mind. And it's and you're right, the others do reflect on this. I think Theresa May didn't much because she was just struggling to survive. But the others certainly did. And you're right, Blair did. And um, Brown did to some extent, actually, even though he struggled to just stay in power. And, and clearly Cameron would have liked Osborne to take over. Uh, thanks for that, Dominic. Enjoy the honeymoon. I hope it's going well. Stuart Grant from uh, Berkhamsted. Apologies, I couldn't make the most recent King's Place event. I was there for, oh yeah, now this is the big email of the week with every respect for the other brilliant emails. You'll see why. And I was unable, therefore, to hand over your highly anticipated Union Jack socks. Stuart's the one who's offered me these Union Jack socks so I can be like Frosty, Lord Frosty, wearing these socks. And this is the breaking news Stuart has emailed say, I have a set of three pairs for you. Uh, your enthusiasm for these most desirable items of high fashion has been palpable. Yeah, three I'm so excited. Anyway, I'm going to get in touch with you, Stuart. We're going to arrange for a big handover. We'll have to be photographed and I'll put it on Twitter or something. Uh, Stuart also has a question. In the spring statement, I thought it very odd that Rishi Sunak pre-announced a 1p cut in the basic rate of income tax by 2024. This had the twin effect of making him both a hostage to fortune as well as deny himself the advantage of making the announcement on the eve of the next election. Surely, strategically, he didn't need to do it. Do you agree with me that this shines a light on how jittery the Tory parliamentary party is on the direction of travel? Yeah. Oh, uh, we'll come to that in a minute. Stuart says, I'm now set up on Patreon. Greatly looking forward to your podcast. My general election suggestion is a comparison between the elections of 1955 and 2007. In both cases, newly appointed prime ministers who'd been heir apparent for over a decade had just finally succeeded to the crown. In 1955, Eden called a snap election and won impressively. Of course, in 2007, Gordon Brown hesitated. And it was the election that wasn't, and his authority was never the same again. Yes, Stuart, that, uh, yeah, a, a fascinating comparison. And certainly, um, 2007 is going to come in in uh, cock-ups in terms of early elections. And yeah, to go back to 55 and Eden, of course, Eden was gone soon after, but it doesn't 
I mean, he, he, he did something very smart in calling and winning that early election. Uh, great ideas. In terms of the substance of your question, I do think it was really clunky of Sunak to pre-announce that uh, income tax cut. Uh, it means when it comes, and it will come, even if we're on the edge of an economic cliff, it will be anticlimactic because he's already announced it. My guess is it will mean he'll have to do something more in that pre-election budget, like a bigger cut in income tax, even if it's wholly unaffordable. And Labour will then have to back it too, because they won't go to an election pledging to put up income taxes. So it's a mess. And, and, and it's, it was all too transparent. And show, reminds us that Rishi Sunak is, you know, still relatively immature politically. He, he was Chief Secretary of the Treasury, promoted to Chancellor in unbelievably surreal circumstances. And I, I, I agree with you. It felt clunky. Uh, Hugh Carr. Oh, yeah. He points out at, uh, that early elections can be a mistake. And he gives some examples. 2017. But he also points out that not going combined two. And he gives the example of 1978 and then uh, what Jim Callaghan was going to call an early election in 78 and didn't, carried on to 79 and lost. And then Gordon Brown, again, uh, like Stuart, who was thinking of going in 2007, carried on and then lost in 2010. Yeah, but Hugh, uh, uh, yeah, this, these were just thoughts while he was uh, preparing his chicken korma. Yeah, that I have those thoughts. I don't eat chicken, but I have these thoughts while cooking, whether Callahan should have gone in 78 and things like that. And I don't think he should have done, actually, Hugh. I, th- I think he would have lost then. But that's an unconventional view. And I spoke to David Steele about this quite recently. He was leader of the Liberals then and very close to Callahan. And he thought it would be a hung parliament and there would be a really good working lab-lib coalition. But David Steele famously opposed the one that did occur in 2010 between the Conservatives and the Liberals. Thank you, uh, Hugh, for reminding us of the agonising decisions as to whether or not to call elections. It drives Prime Ministers crazy, including, incidentally, Margaret Thatcher when she was way ahead. There's a brilliant memoir, I've forgotten by who, it's called White Milk. It was by one of her advisors, one of the great writers. I'll tell you next week. And he describes Thatcher deciding whether or not to call election 83. She was 20 points ahead in the poll. She was in agonies and looking at reasons for delaying it and so on. So there we go. Anthony Bimson, back to tuition fees. I've come to the conclusion that they're misnamed and should be called a graduate tax instead. Like a tax, it's only paid when income rises above a certain level. And I've heard Martin Lewis, the money guru, saying that only the top 20% of earners will pay it all back. Lewis also said that it was called tuition fees by the Blair government because they had promised the 1997 election not to introduce any new taxes. Yeah, it is, it is, it is close to a graduate tax. Anthony, uh, by the way, there are more, more to come on tuition fees. I think it's lurking there as quite a big story. It, it, it is close to a graduate tax, but you highlight one of the problems with this whole thing. That given that 20% will only pay it all back, it doesn't really even work as a kind of saving for government, particularly. It does 
a bit, but not as much as it should do. So I, I still don't think the balance is right. But yeah, it is pretty close to a graduate tax. From our correspondent in France, Dominique Adjul. Uh, dear uh, Steve, I note from your last podcast that you believe the Conservatives likely campaign yet again on Brexit in the next election. Yeah, I think they will. Given that, not only has their uh, narrative been that they got Brexit done, but in addition, that have what, what one might refer to as a smokescreen in the forms of COVID, the COVID pandemic and the war in Ukraine. So what is the advantage in raking up a campaign that was done theoretically last time? and one for which there is much evidence to discredit its aims and objectives. Yeah, well, the answer is, Dominica, that Brexit is still in a very subdued way, as you know, far from resolved from your French perspective. It's still deeply divisive. But you can tell from Johnson's decision, and it was a decision because it was a speech and not spontaneous, to link Ukrainian resistance with Brexit, shows he still regards it, perhaps mistakenly, as a potent issue. Okay, thank you, uh, uh, Dominica. Keep us informed with the French dimensions. Very interesting, Macron's approach, different to Johnson's in relation to Ukraine, uh, perhaps different from Biden's. Uh, let us know the view from France, uh, uh, Dominica. Noah Keat, my university term has just finished, so I'm very busy essay writing. I'm right. Well, I'm pleased you've broken off, Noah. You've got to break off every now and again. I'm writing to ask why some on the left are eager to label Tony Blair as a conservative, small C and big C. While I'm no admirer of the former Prime Minister, I think this is one of many unfair accusations labelled at him. Personally, Blair's father was a conservative. Professionally, Blair was a lawyer, a sector surely full of conservatives. Not in all cases, Noah. Politically, his early adult life came as Labour struggled to manage economic instability with union demands. Would Blair not have had ample time and opportunity to join the Conservatives if that was where his loyalties really lay? Good point, no? You know, Blair joined the Labour Party at a point where it was in turmoil, although, I mean, he became active in the 70s when that minority Labour government was in power, uh, but struggling. And then, of course, he became an MP uh, in 83 when it was hardly the in thing to do. If he was a Conservative, there was a more direct route to a ruling party. So he's clearly, he's not a Conservative. He was hugely influenced by his wife, Cherie, about Labour politics and the Labour Party. So you're you're right, and I think he he remains utterly gripped by Labour and how Labour should win. I don't always agree with his views on the route forward. I think they are rather vague and and, and too rooted in the mid nineteen nineties. But uh, yeah, I mean he he. He isn't a conservative, although I can see how that narrative is formed in his willingness to accept quite a lot of what happened in the 1980s. But as I say, if you look at the 97 government, they were in many ways transformative. 
and you can list a long achievement, set of achievements. I think it was the combination of Blair and Brown, not Blair alone. But um, uh, yeah, it, uh, if you're a big C conservative, you join the big C conservative party in, in England anyway, and, and you win most of the time. Steve Petrie, rather gloomy views on what's happening in Ukraine. And, and, and Steve, I think, I think you were in the Foreign Office, weren't you, Steve, and, and, and is an expert on all of this. He concludes his email of gloomy analysis uh, by returning to Putin and the calculation by him, which probably applies in most scenarios. If Putin believes he's facing a threat to his personal position, and given his likely belief that the rule of modern autocrats often ends badly, this war might end by triggering a wider confrontation with NATO. Given the weakness of Russia's conventional forces demonstrated in Ukraine, Putin's confidence in his ability to succeed against NATO using conventional means alone must be low. Any military confrontation with NATO would therefore probably result quickly, best case, in a nuclear standoff or, worst case, in a nuclear exchange. On which happy note. Well, thank you, Steve, for cheering us all up. Uh, yeah, no, I, you see, wh- one of the things that worries me about Ukraine, I mentioned Cummings earlier, and he's mentioned this, is that the longer this goes on, in a way, the more dangerous it becomes. And Cummings questions whether it has been the right approach of the West to encourage Ukraine to resist in the way it has, heightening the tensions with uh, Putin and whether we've seen with Biden say, oh, yeah, they've got to get rid of him and regime change and all the problems that arise, you can see how this could escalate dangerously. And in the nuclear dimension, it is truly terrifying. So let's uh, cheer ourselves up by returning to Simon Duffin in Australia. Now, Simon says, now, Simon has I think once was listening to this podcast in his car and got hit by a kangaroo. And he says, thank you for your concern that I am at risk of hitting another kangaroo on my way home from work. Funny enough, as I listened to your podcast this week, I was actually driving home along an avenue in my hometown where the danger comes from possums leaping out of trees than kangaroos hopping out of the bush. Uh, well, so I, it's hazardous in Australia. Uh, yeah, I'm kind of stick indoors. It's obviously anyway. Simon was the one who proposed more independence uh, to fight in the next general election. I raised some doubts about this, and uh, we had some interesting emails last week about how independents actually don't rise to the challenge in Ireland of national politics and so on. Simon adds, my idea is not that the independents are a long-term answer to problems in British politics, but rather that they would stand in a one-off election to depose the current bunch who run the country. They could stand on issues like integrity in politics, Russian money, whatever issues might rally enough voters to oust the likes of Johnson Trust, Rees-Mogg, in seats that are really unwinnable for the opposition parties. Quite probably, the independents would stand down after one term in 2029, by which time the Conservatives would have changed leader and hopefully become more like the party it used to be. Yeah, that was how Martin Bell, of course, was used. I think it was just for one term in 1997 to defeat Neil Hamilton in Tatton. Say, I remain 
concern about the wider cultural implications of independence. Uh, Andrew, thank you. Stay very safe in Australia, Simon. Uh, Andrew Stewart in Sheffield, just a quickie to say that Rishi Sunak's statement, yes, uh, will be last week now, Andrew wrote this uh, last week, and his media interviews serve to confirm my long-held view that he's quite simply not prime ministerial material. Yeah, I, I think he's pretty lightweight, Andrew, I agree. And I think some Tory MPs are beginning to judge their previous kind of reverential view of Rishi Sunak. Uh, Andrew adds, I spent yesterday with my brother Nick, who along with his partner Gita, often accompany me to your events at King's Place. They're moving to Derbyshire, so we checked with who their new MP will be. Lo and behold, it's the future Prime Minister, Lee Rowley. Oh, Wow. Yeah, as you know, in King's Place, the audiences have predicted Lee Rowley. Watch out for Lee Rowley and on this podcast. Well, Andrew, we must all go and pay homage to Lee Rowley in uh, your brother's um, uh, new constituency. We'll all pay, we'll all do a pilgrimage to Lee Rowley. Uh, but I agree with you about Rishi Sunak. James Leach. When my dad and I came to the King's Place show in February, you discussed how the Tories were still captivated by the Thatcherite idea of freedom. Well, they certainly have seized the term freedom, James. They have since 1979, and it's a vote-winning term. But do you think the current generation of Tories missed the point about what made Thatcher so effective? She demonstrated an ability to take on vested interests, for example, a windfall tax on banks in 1981, and obviously her decision for good or ill to take on the miners' leadership. She was able to steer Britain away from being a heavy manufacturing country. Uh, would you agree that this generation of Tories seem unable to take on vested interests? Witness Boris Johnson failing to stand up to energy companies, travels to Saudi Arabia to keep for oil and so on. Yeah. Oh, my dad and I look forward to seeing you in another King's Place show soon. Thank you, James. See you there. Yeah, I remember that one where we looked at political language like freedom. Yeah, she was, Margaret Thatcher, in many ways more formidable from, than the current generation. But I hesitate a bit because I think there's been some revisionism about her. You're right about the vested interests. There was a more coherent kind of economic philosophy than either Sunak's or uh, Boris Johnson's confused kind of Rooseveltian Keynesianism one minute and Thatcherism the next. But I think there is a revisionism going on about her, James, which is is misplaced. She, she wasn't this figure of great weighty depth, I think. I mean, Michael Heseltine, I know he was no fan of hers, but he says that a lot of her ideas came from a sort of conversation with a constituent or, you know, the way her, his, her father used to run his grocer's shop. And yet, partly in contrast to the current bunch of lightweights, she's now framed as this sort of titan. And I'm, I, I'm not sure that's right, but you're right to point out areas where she was far, far more formidable than the current generation. Now, on tuition fees, I have had a long email from Marios Richards, no relation. He makes a range of points, uh, but I will just summarise, as we'll be here for some time. I've spent an excessive amount of time in universities, and for years it's really got under my skin that people inside and outside of universities would assert, one, they're really in favour of higher taxation, particularly progressive taxation, to fund state spending, and then declare, two, that they're against tuition fees 
despite the fact that they're nothing more than a hyper-progressive capped income tax on graduates. So he is in favour of them and sees that it was rather like the previous email, uh, uh, in effect a graduate tax and hyper-progressive, he calls it. He's not a fan of some of the recent changes that have been introduced by the government, which we've looked at in previous podcasts, but he is clearly in favour of the idea of tuition fees as hyper-progressive. Read your proposal that they should be kept but cut. That's something I mooted in a previous podcast. That would only benefit graduates on the highest of incomes. The only individuals for whom 9,000 a year student loans are different from 6,000 a year are people who step out of university and work for a bank on 40k. These people neither really want nor need a tax cut. Yeah, fair point, fair point. And he doesn't think my idea that co-payments give leverage to students applies either. So, yeah, it's a really interesting debate. I I kind of argue that they do empower. He says, um, I do think it's reasonable to want accountability for universities, but this just isn't one of those situations where you could outsource that to a university place market student oversight. Interesting. Okay, thank you very much. Dan Webster from Stadybridge. Normally listen to your podcast doing long dog walks in the hills of Staley Bridge with a five-month-old baby strapped to my chest. Usually a nice way to spend my time unless one of them is kicking off. Yeah, you got two possible people, people, one dog, one baby who could kick off. I hope you're listening to this in a kind of blissful silence where both dog and baby are equally engaged with all the things that we're talking about. Uh, I had a question inspired by one from last week, the biggest mistakes. Yeah, well, Dan, I'm going to be doing it on the Patreon. You've all inspired me, the biggest mistakes. One decision made by Labour during the Blair years, the opening of borders to the new Eastern European members of the EU for jobs, was pointed to later as one of the causes of the referendum defeat or the Remain defeat on Brexit. In hindsight, was this a big mistake? It was a huge deal at the time and the few years after, but seems largely forgotten now. I once had an argument with my granddad about this subject. He was moaning on about the Poles coming here, stealing our jobs. And I had to remind him he was an immigrant himself from the Republic of Ireland. Good theme, uh, that one. Um, You see, mistake... Again, it's this word, mistake. It was a decision made based on assumptions that were wrong about the numbers who would come, but also an assumption that the economy would benefit, which it did. So was it a mistake, a misjudgment, the right move? Really interesting questions uh, for another podcast. Uh, Venetia Kane says, I was surprised, indeed rather shocked at your apparent belittling of one of the key roles of our members of parliament in your podcast. I thought your regret that so many of them were much better at sorting local problems than at management, leadership, etc. was very London-centric. For many individuals, writing to their MPs about a serious problem with that the authorities is a last resort and often successful. To 
To my mind, this is a key role of the MP. This was in the debate about independence we're having. Every single one of the 600-odd MPs should be a good local fighter, sorting individual problems and taking up local causes. We only need 100 or so of them on each side to be government material. Yeah, the thing is, Venetia, there's not 100 on each side who are. Such is the fashion for localism that we are missing big figures in the House of Commons. And I kind of, I know, you know, that's one of the roles of MPs, but there's been a too big a refocus on this particular role, in, in, in my view. Anyway, thank you for that. Um, uh, Derek Chapman from Reading. Uh, he says, oh, I'm getting so many tellings off in these emails. I think what you said about consequences, my favourite political term, and you can get a cup of consequences, rock and roll politics cup on that Patreon site, is rather naive, if I might say so, because it doesn't apply to everyone. More specifically, it doesn't apply to the Conservatives. For example, if a government of any other colour had pulled a blunt blunder like the poll tax, they'd be finished. As it was, they just changed their leader and won a stonking victory at the next election. You mentioned tuition fees, the Lib Dems were blamed, but not the Conservatives, etc., etc. Actually, Derek, we are in complete agreement. As I say, the Conservatives win elections in England anyway, most of the time, and don't in the end face consequences of that sort, whereas uh, other parties do. But there were still consequences to the poll tax I'm going to be looking at soon. But to give the example of the poll tax, Thatcher fell partly because of it. So, you, you know, I think this term still resonates. And when political leaders don't think through consequences, as Johnson rarely does, there will be trouble ahead. But you're quite right, it may, win, may well win the next election. But there, anyway, there are consequences and consequences. We are at one, Derek, even though you think I'm naive. Anyway, uh, Roger Jones, I've titled this email, Taking One for the Team, in highlighting how successive Labour leaders, apart from Blair, have put themselves first and the party second, starting with Gordon Brown demanding to be Prime Minister and then failing miserably, letting in Cameron and Clegg, then Miliband fighting his brother, then Jeremy Corbyn, who was unelectable, and uh, he now wonders whether uh, Andy Burnham would be better uh, to fight an election. Yeah, well, Roger, that's not how it would have seemed to them at the time. To give one example, Ed Miliband, when he fought that leadership contest in 2010, had every right to do so. It's not his fault he won. He just won. So I think it's more complicated than that. But I, I know what you mean. Do the vote winners get elected? That's a slightly different theme. Uh, Colin Green, I've been listening to your podcast for a couple of months now and thoroughly enjoying it. Well, you can listen back, Colin. You know, you can go on a honeymoon and listen to back uh uh, podcasts like um, some of our emailers today. In your last latest podcast, you read out a comment from a listener that said, uh, it is 10 years since tuition fees were introduced, implying they were introduced in 2012. Tuition fees were, of course, introduced in 1998 and tripled in 2004. 24 years and 18 years ago, respectively. I'm surprised you didn't correct that as you read it uh, as you are so well informed. Well, it's nice for you to sound well informed on British political history. Well, Colin, I'm sorry. You know, I didn't. But we've corrected it now. Anyway, God, I'm getting told off all over the place here. 
From uh, Denise uh, Willier, I was reflecting on your observations about how Johnson will return to Brexit as a key election theme. Yeah, we were t- as I walked past the Rope Tackle Art Centre and along the River Ada. Is it Ada? Is that how you pronounce it, Denise? On this glorious spring day. Yeah, I know you go walking on the beach there and, oh, yeah, love the Rope Tackle Art Centre. Um, there's another reason why I think Johnson returning to the crime, scene of the crime is inevitable and which points to a key Johnsonian weakness. I'm in the process of reading Sonia Pennell's excellent and prescient book, Just Boris, A Tale of Blonde Ambition. I've read it too. It's a great book. What struck me is how Johnson's life has been driven by the EU. He lived in Brussels as a child. He made his name and built his brand as a columnist writing about the EU. And he used the EU as a springboard for his leadership ambitions. Take away the EU and he doesn't appear to have any beliefs and driving motivations beyond a ruthless pursuit of that which advances him personally. There's literally nothing there but whiffle waffle or a pile of piffle. Oh, I like that. He, you could imagine him saying, oh, whiffle, a pile of piffle. Yeah, that's very interesting. It is one of the things he has always lent on for definition. And leaders anyway tend to refight previous elections when they've won them. Um, so uh, now, as Denise suggests, that doesn't mean it's going to win it for him next time, but it will be a theme and Labour need to be ready for it. She adds, by the way, I checked in with our one woman focus group, my formerly Tory voting mother at the weekend. These were her words. I didn't realise the Tory party was so corrupt. I will never vote for them again. So there we are. Our one woman focus group uh, is swinging uh, away from the party that tends to win elections in England. Uh, Okay, now next, John Barnes. Warm greetings from Mozambique. Hi, John. Thank you for tuning in. I listened to your latest podcast this morning. And I have to congratulate you for being absolutely spot on in your thoughts about the use of language in politics and particularly the ideological slant given to emotive words like freedom and deregulation by the Conservatives. You're absolutely right. Labour needs to stand these words on their head and give the electorate an alternative us-we meaning. Yeah, oh yeah, well, I'm pleased you... you this, I'm going to look at more language. Anyway, uh, uh, John... Uh, we're on, still on Brexit here. I have a question relating to uh, Brexit, but I, uh, yeah, he uses a different term. Uh, despite the last election being almost exclusively about getting Brexit done, it hasn't been put to bed. And I would put a hefty wager on it being a central feature of the next election. Denise was saying the same. I agree too. Again, Labour needs to come up with a response. To date, Starmer has treated Brexit as a toxic issue and has steered well clear of it. This can't continue. The Tories will almost certainly appoint to Starmer as a woke Islington Remainer who tried to overturn the will of the people. Exactly. That's how they're going to try and get him. So Labour needs, as uh, John says, to start countering this now. But how? It has to be smart to be effective. Um, yeah, well, I think you have to do it by focusing on the Brexit that was negotiated because it is astonishing and bizarre. Uh, much more reckless, say, than the way the poll tax evolved uh, in the Tory government. Two people really were involved in that negotiation by the end. 
the unelected Lord Frost and the half-attentive Boris Johnson. Uh, Dominic Cummings was for a bit, but he was sacked by the end. And the way it was uh, done was not in the interests of Britain. And again, you seize the language of interests of Britain, patriotism, to undo their arguments that you're rightly saying they're going to make. Uh, And finally, from Simon Lockyer, I was listening to the podcast and Laundry Joe's suggestion about mistakes made by politicians. Oh, yeah, this was one of Laundry Joe's ideas for the podcast. Laundry Joe's so cool because he listens while doing his laundry. It's not all glamour out there. Bread baking and running and yachting and stuff. I mean, you know, and, and being in Mozambique and on honeymoon and stuff. Laundry Joe does his laundry. But he wants, he, he's interested about mistakes and how they come about. Theresa May and her triggering of Article 50, Gordon Brown in late 2007 not calling an election only to delay and then look indecisive. I agree with Laundry Joe about Cameron and his inability to face down the sceptics. I guess that some of the government decisions might take a different turn in the future. COVID, Brexit and inflation investment, the consequences might not yet be apparent. As the government has been using COVID and now Ukraine as a disguise for hiding the Brexit issues. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? Uh, Oh, Simon says, have I got the socks, the uh, uh, Union Jack socks? Well, as you'll have heard, Simon, I'm getting them three pairs so I can wear them continuously. Uh, But yeah, this issue of mistakes, you mentioned, I'm going to look at the, yeah, that's a really good one. When Theresa May triggered Article 50 without thinking it through. Why? There are always reasons why they do it. They haven't gone bonkers. It's such a rich theme. Anyway, look, blimey, we've been going on for over an hour now. You'll have baked really great sourdough. You'll have run more than 10k and all the rest of it. So thank you all so much for listening. As I say, if you're on that Patreon Rock and Roll Politics bonus podcast, the 1992 election, epic and cinematic to come at the beginning of next month. It's going to be another big week. We've all got to get together to make sense of it all in a week's time. So thanks so much for listening as far as you can in these weird, wild times. Have a great time. Thank you. Bye. Bye.